Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. On today's episode, we are talking about trees. I know a lot of people have been tweeting about how much they've been enjoying The Green Planet, David Attenborough's brilliant new series. And in fact, in the most recent episode, he was talking about some of the 3,000-year-old trees in the US. And our guest on today's episode of Book Shambles is James Canton, whose book The Oak Papers looks at the life of an 800-year-old oak tree here in the UK. So Robin's conversation with him is coming up very shortly. Just before that, thank you as always goes to our Patreon supporters. You can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to subscribe and support the podcast and get extended episodes each and every week and also help us keep making the show, obviously. Remind you as well that the two postponed shows of Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People will be Nine Lessons in the spring, April 16 and 17. That's Easter weekend, back at King's Place. Robin hosting, lots of guests, Lucy Green, Matt Parker, Helen Chersky, Charlie George, Neera Chamberlain, Grace Petrie, loads more. Basically all the sorts of things that we would normally do at Christmas, but this time at Easter. Check out the Cosmic Shambles bookshop online as well, cosmicshambles.com slash bookshop to get signed copies of books by your favourite science authors as well as Robin's book, The Importance of Being Interested. First edition hardbacks of that are still available from us. Like, rate, review, five stars on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you listen to the show. And now on to this week's conversation. Here is Robin. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robbie's Book Shambles, which, uh, as as it has been for the last couple, uh, at the moment there is no Josie, but she will be back. We have not had some awful spat after we did uh, Pointless Celebrities. Obviously, how could you have <laughs> an awful spat after such answers as uh, Eve Ferret and uh, Aaron Darty Roy? Um, and, uh, and it's not over the fact that uh, Josie did say Invitation was a lyric that was in uh, the Martha Reeve and the Vandellas song and was not in there. It's not down to that. That's not why we don't talk anymore. Um, but yeah, Josie will be back very soon. So that's enough of that. Let's talk about oak trees. Um, and this Good is idea. joined by James Canton, who's put the oak papers. It did, I mean, first of all, one of the reasons that I, I was interested is I lived or was brought up, indeed, born in a village that has one of those oak trees that is filled with mystery and stories. It's at the uh-huh. back of an old manor house. It's one of those incredible oak trees where there is no centre to it anymore. The, the fact that it is still mm. alive seems mm. utterly remarkable because it seems to be a hollow shell. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those ones where, well, of course, Queen Elizabeth I came and played here and she hid some jewels <laughs> that were never found and, you know, various different... Yeah. yeah, and a lot of cavaliers, I would imagine. It's A lot of cavaliers have oh, hidden yeah. up oak trees, haven't they? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, cavaliers and oak trees are very closely associated. No, very much so. And uh, and as you say, most villagers have their own narratives of, of who came and stood next to their tree and what happened and da 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 And it's normally Queen Elizabeth, actually, weirdly. Uh, she she got around a bit, I believe, and uh, got to a number of oak trees. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, the that whole idea about that you can have this living. I think that was one of the things that kind of 
shocked me early on that trees are actually individual living beings. And that's kind of like conceptually, I was kind of like, whoa, okay. Yeah, I kind of, yeah. I mean, obviously I knew that before, but when you're actually sitting next to or standing next to, or, you know, beside something that is 800 years old, still alive and still looking all right, actually, you know, I mean, might have lost a bit up the top, but you know, all that kind of thing, uh, but it's doing all right. And I think this is the thing, isn't it? That most of us, when we actually pause can kind of go, geez, that's, that's amazing. I mean, that is, that is absolutely amazing. That has seen 30 generations of us human folk, you know, standing up, sitting beside it, weighing on it, you know, doing whatever they want, you know, all this kind of interaction. And it's just stood there, or that's the wrong verb, probably. It's just grown there on that plot of land, in that parish, on that village green, whatever, you know, and that's, that's bonkers. That's bonkers. It does seem stuff, like it? one of the most tangible ways of immediately having some sense of contact in the past. I mean, not merely because yeah. of the nature of a tree's rings as well, but yeah. that that sense of because obviously the geological landscape moves at a slower pace. So yeah. even though that, I mean, I, I always love those things where um, people. I think it was with Neil Gaiman once we were talking about when things yeah. are turned into verbs. So you get things like you know a hill yeah. also hills, and a hill when you're looking at a hill it is hilling. <laughs> yeah. You know, that kind yes. of stuff is beautiful, but but there's a slowness to that. Whereas the the tree, I mean, even I I think of yeah. uh, the 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 I don't know how many other people have this. There's a Christmas tree. My dad planted the Christmas tree when I was four years old. The one that we had, <laughs> and it is now utterly preposterous. It kind of <laughs> cast this enormous shadow over the village green, yeah. and that yeah. is you know there used to be a time where we'd still manage to get some lights up it, but that's like thirty years ago now. Again, yeah, yeah. you are able to watch and get a sense of the passing of time, and even sometimes think of yeah. trees that will survive when we are long gone. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Robin. And we do think we do things like that. You know, when my father passed, you know, back in the sort of mid nineties, you know, I just moved up to. Well, in fact, it was a couple of years later I moved up to, to rural Essex. And and what did I do? I had a I suddenly had sort of two acres of land. I planted a tree. You know, I plant you plant a tree, don't you, to remember, uh, to remember people. And to, and now obviously that's quite a big tree actually. And, uh, and I planted a tree that I thought was a Lebanese cedar tree. And it's not a Lebanese cedar tree, because as it's got bigger, people have said, no, it's not a Lebanese cedar, mate. And I'm like, oh, OK. Um, you know, and this kind of thing that I think you're absolutely right, that trees operate at a different pace. And I think this is one of the things I recognised when I started started this whole uh, Oak Papers project, if you like, was, was just that thing of going and sitting beside an ancient oak tree an 800 year old tree and after a period of time recognizing that you're they're operating in kind of oak time as you say like whatever you want to call it some neologism like like they're just operating at a different pace from us you know there's been some amazing stuff recently about the the notion of the heartbeat in the tree you know and how often this takes place etc but you know at, at that time I, I wasn't even thinking about that but it there's something very powerful to us individual humans that I kind of connected with very quickly, really. And, and again, we intuitively know it, but about going sitting and sort of stepping almost into that oak time that, that slows us. You have to slow. You, you have to, your pace stops. You know, they don't move. We move. They don't move. I mean, they 
they they move in the sense that like they migrate for example there's a lot about tree migrations at the moment due to climate change but but individual living beings are on that same plot where they're born now we don't do that we we as individual humans we move around quite a lot and to actually then be fixed to a point in space and time by that oak like it, it did strange things in terms of meditative process feeling calm feeling peaceful etc you know and um yeah i think that was one of the reasons why i thought i've got i need to write a book about this i think you know what i mean i should write what a was, book that's interesting because when the book first came out that was a two or three months into lockdown i think the first lockdown in the uk yeah yeah that's right and yeah. so you would have finished that book before there was this a new kind of onslaught of people going oh my god i really need a connection with something yeah. more you know yeah. the difference from people i know who were living in a block of flats sure who could not escape to those people like me luckily who i, I I'm, I'm fortunate to live not far from the countryside i can walk outside my door and yeah. i can be in some woodland within 10 minutes walking 10 minutes yeah and to have that access I'd already started, the older you get, I think, sometimes the more you feel the importance of that. But, I mean, I wondered if, yeah. if that would have changed in any way the book, you think, when so many people were then then entirely deprived of that connection. Yeah, it's a good point. I, You know, I don't know, to be honest, Robin, it, it might well have um, kind of filtered into being one of the kind of, that kind, those kind of themes of narrative. But I think, I think, I think it was already there, weirdly, mm. in the sense that I was personally... Um, you know, during during the book, th throughout the kind of the years of writing this book, because it did take a while. And again, that was something that I recognised that if you're going to write a book about an 800 year old oak tree, don't rush it. If you know what I mean, <laughs> uh, that don't. It'll be rubbish. And I went. It went through many versions. You know, this is not a big book. It's not like an 800 page book for an 800 year old tree. But it went through about I don't know seven pretty serious edits you know, over over the years and before it became the version that it now is. And I think, you know, yeah, one of the things that I recognised was telling, I needed to tell various narrative tales within this book. It couldn't just be a single kind of, oh, well, what, day one, I sat next to a tree, day two, you know, and then, and that's how I'd initially imagined it, that it would be a kind of a yearly kind of almanac of, of the life of an oak in some sort of jovial kind of 19th century vision way but uh but no that's right so part of what i wanted to do is express that the the deep connection and and uh, peace and awe and wonder that i was experiencing by going and doing this project by going and sitting by an 800 year old tree and then as you say during during lockdown we were kind of uh, forced all of us as individual humans were forced to recognize what we sometimes weren't noticing on a daily basis which was that essential need to be recognizably part of nature uh, i mean we are part of nature as like we are living beings we are nature there's no like i really don't like it when people talk about the distinction between you know us and we need to be we need to spend more time in nature we're always in nature that's being human even if you stand in like some square box thing that we live in you're still in nature you know, but being more connected with aspects of the natural world. Yeah, 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 yeah. We need to make sure we do that regularly, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it then that aspect of the of the narrative, I think, was something that then people could hopefully kind of connect with uh, during lockdown, certainly.
So what about you? You said you moved to rural Essex in the 1990s. Where were you brought up then? What was the kind of environment you were in? Yeah, well, so I, I was brought up in West London, so I'm, I'm very much a Londoner um, at heart or something. Um, but yeah, so I grew up in, in West Ealing and uh, the kind of the green spaces were the parks. Definitely. We had a garden and we, had, you know, we had uh, we had a pear tree. Uh, which I remember I'd sort of sit in because people sort of say, oh, did you, uh, you know, from a very young age, were you often sort of sitting in trees? And I obviously that the answer people want is, oh, yeah, yeah, or not always, you know, always. But um, I would occasionally sit in this pear tree uh, and look over at the neighbours. But, uh, you know, it, it, it was a sort of suburban existence, really. But I did, you know, I was definitely brought up in that way that you were kind of out of the house all day. Uh, you know you you kind of if it was a holiday time you would have some breakfast and then you're out and you would come back when you're hungry and you try and you know feed yourself lunch or you know that kind of way I mean I wasn't totally abandoned etc but uh, but I think that I think that did operate in terms of I'm the outside the outside world is is very important to me and even even coming from a suburban background you know, I was always in the park kicking a ball or in in the garden chucking a tennis ball at a wall or, you know, or trying to, you know, dig up the garden or something, you know. And that aspect, I think, has run through, has run through my life. I, you know, when people ask these questions, uh, you know, not saying you're asking that question, but that kind of like, you know, where do you get to from that child? And and I think one thing, you know, I my main job is teaching a, a master's course in wild writing at the University of Essex now that's the more important thing that I do and that's definitely fed from that slightly feral child I think yeah so you probably also if you brought in West Ealing know uh, Cherry Pie the exotic lingerie shop yeah I that I do. How, the, how the hell do you know that though because I pretty much used to live next door I was I lived in a basement flat that eventually flooded with sewage and uh when people would say where do you live and you'd give various oh, I live near there live near there and it's there and then eventually you'd go well it's, it's not far away from cherry pie. oh cherry pie oh, cherry pie yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. knew yeah, yeah. cherry pie because yeah. it's at the traffic lights when you've come off the main road and you're That's going it. into town and yeah. then you go what a strange place for a small exotic lingerie <laughs> shop so uh, but we, we won't we don't need to go any further with that as I said eventually the uh, the basement yeah. flat I lived in flooded with sewage and uh, and that was nice. very much the end of that story. That sounds like we're stealing to me. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I remember cleaning out the garden. I mean, it wasn't really. It literally was. It was just a kind of. It was a lump of soil in which you would then go, oh, someone's wallet and these syringes. Ah, oh, nice. what a party this has been. Um, the, oh, there's nice bits of it as well. Oh no, it's yeah, lovely. Definitely. Oh, I'm not. I, I don't mean that as an anti thing. It was. Just, it was just. I, I think yeah. especially if you're on one of the traffic lights where it, it's a bit like an archway yeah, or anywhere yeah. like that, the bit that is just where it comes in. So you've got lovely Bang. streets around, but you are the yeah. bit where people have had sometimes adventures and sometimes they are nefarious. Yeah, and that is slightly notorious little junction, I would imagine. For the yes. psychographers, it would be it would be like the place to go without. Yeah, there are no blue plaques there, but somewhere, somewhere, if you if you begin to chip away the bricks, there are. I'm very happy to tell stories of the cinema. That's the the uh, one two cinema it used to be called. Oh uh, yeah, the, which which was when I lived there. It very much <laughs> become a kind of Bollywood cinema. It was, oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Okay, so it changed. So before that, just briefly, um, there were there were two cinemas, and you'd have one queue, which would be like you know, I, like families, and you'd have like Bambi, and then the other one was obviously the what we call the old man cinema, and you'd have these two queues, like uh, just lined up next to each other, 
and and you, rain coming through the ceiling. Oh, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Oh, that's yeah. a, I'd never known about uh, that. Yeah, because that 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 had long gone. Where I had a similar experience once when I was queuing up to go and see the band The Wedding Present, and I oh, thought, yeah. oh, this queue is horrible. Are these people going to see the wedding present? I feel very let down. And then I found out I was actually in the wrong queue, which was the other venue that was showing, which had the uh, Oasis tribute band. And then everything was explained. And then I went into the correct room filled say, with like dour men and women. Oh, yeah, no, dour men and women pogoed slightly in heavy boots, as they <laughs> always do. In terms of unearthing that, I mean, it's very interesting. When you talk yeah. about writing as well, wild writing, mm. you know, where do you, let, let's talk about some of those influences of where you feel you can first when when you're introducing people who are the people you first go to and say have a look at this this is what you you know if not aim but at least influence from in terms of writers yeah in terms of wild writing yeah yeah well the point about the wild writing is that it's meant to be this kind of interdisciplinary approach where you take literature and science and you kind of weld them together a little bit i mean so that it's it is meant to be a more kind of uh, wider perspective um, so some of the texts that we're currently looking at, we're looking, you know, I'm teaching new nature writing at the moment. We're looking at books like Helen MacDonald, Rob McFarlane of the kind of the British contingent, if you like, Annie Dillard, I'd chuck in there, you know, Barry Lopez, people like that, definitely from the kind of US side, you know, and then, uh, you know, more recently people like Suzanne Simard I'd, I'd throw in as well. But, um, but I, th- I guess, I guess that's very different from, from where, I, from where I was coming from. I mean, but it, it there's a sense in which I also have a slightly kind of uh, mixed bag of, of education. So I, I started a degree in geology and uh, quick, quite quickly realized that it probably wasn't going to be a lifelong pursuit. Um, I had this plan that it's now, I, I, I learned quite quickly, it's called the sun editor theory that you would, so I was going to become a geologist, become head of shell, and then change their policy on on you know fossil fuels and this was like yeah nice idea nice idea james that's not gonna happen mate if you know what i mean not me well maybe it would have done but uh and then someone explained to me this is called the sun editor theory that you you feel you feel you're going to become editor of the sun and then you're going to change their policy but of course by the time you actually become editor that is that you have those policies in your own head sort of mm. like that. but yeah so i started geology uh ended up d- doing psychology as a degree and then kind of worked my right way around and did a PhD eventually in literature. So um, in British travel writing on Arabia, actually. So if there are main influences into my wild writing, I guess people like T Lawrence, mm-hmm. you know, something like that would be pretty wild. Um, but no, I mean, my, most of, most of the people that we look at on the course are, are the kind of contemporary um nature writers and we and largely they're, they're british because it's i think it's so important when you've got students in a room to get writers in there as well so we've got richard maybe booked in for a couple of weeks time for example who's going to come in and actually you know talk to the students a bit about various books that he's written and that they can offer questions and you know we've got a mixed bag of students from that in that they've come from all over the world so we've got this year we've got a Colombian student we've got a student that's come directly from India Canada you know British as well uh so it's, so it's a valuable mix if you like and and often one of the great things about teaching this wild writing is getting that mix of of other people turning up and saying I think we should be looking at this book and I think we should be looking at this book you know because you do get a slightly more um world perspective if you I'm like. so glad I misheard you initially 
and thought you said Richard Maidley. <laughs> and I thought this is one. It means you know a secret about what's going to happen in uh, the the the. He's John on. Show. Uh, I'm a celebrity at the moment. Yeah, really. and I thought Richard yeah. Maidley, and then I went Richard Maybe. It was Richard Maybe. It was definitely Richard Maybe. No, it was definitely Richard Maybe. Uh, though I could change the booking. That might be quite interesting. But no, well, just see how he does. You know, let's wild. let's see how he does. Let's see yeah. what he learns about the wilds of of Wales <laughs> and what can be interpreted from that. But that's. I wondered if you have any because it does seem like, especially with with around you know Robert McFarlane. You, you mentioned that a little bit like I sometimes do a, a series called uh, An Uncanny Hour, which is kind of about I suppose there's been a resurrection in ideas of, you know, a sense of, of uncanniness and some of those yeah. things, some of that stuff that is, is, is sometimes seen as kind of folk horror. And it feels that mm. almost at the same time, we've been seeing a return to a certain form of connective nature writing as well, which mm. does have, as, as you deal with in the Oak Papers as well, also some of the mythic qualities that grow out of, uh, of the environment. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the other modules that we teach, both through the creative writing MAs and and the wild writing, is is a, a module that's called uh, memory maps, which is practices in psychogeography, which is all your unheimlich, the, the uncanny, etc. So, um, and I think you're right, and I think I think these are some of the sort of um, more interesting modern movements within literature, I think, particularly when you're looking at kind of um, narratives about landscape and travel, uh, whatever you want to call them. I mean, people kind of contested that, you know, this term new nature writing, and I've been told various versions of where it arrived from, you know, um, but you, there's a, I would say there's, there is a distinct shift and there's a distinct shift in terms of who the writers are as well, that you, you have a kind of um, a, a wider voice of people writing about nature-based uh, narratives now than, than you did when you go back. And so you, you kind of need to distinguish it in some ways, you know. And I think, you know, someone like Kathleen Jamie's been very good at kind mm. of recognising that aspect and, uh, you know. So, um, so yeah, um, uh, your, your uncanny is, is, um, is very kind of zeitgeist, really, I think, because I think that is what people... Or it's a, it's a, a thread of what people are, are are fascinated, intrigued by, as you say, the kind of the horror folklore tales have all come back in. Um, it's very interesting because often you're you're treading these lines between kind of fact fiction, if you like, like true stories, and then these verging into is, is it mythology or is it just absolute witchery poo? You know, it's kind of like, uh, and people people kind of make their own distinctions as to as to which is the right way to to talk about these certain stories and uh, and etc. But um, but I think it's important, and and in a way, again, with oak papers, what I wanted to, what I realised I had to do, I set out to write this book about an eight hundred year old oak tree, and I and, and initially it was going to be, oh, I'm just going to write this book about a year in the life of an oak and this kind of thing, and. And I just thought, you know, I just couldn't get there. I couldn't get there because you, there are so many aspects of this, this way of writing about nature now that, that you, I think the reader demands more uh, intrigue. They demand more of the narrative uh, and, and the kind of the structure and all these other aspects. And also, I just realised that there were so many parts to this story that I needed to, to tell. Uh, rather than just me going and sitting by a tree and kind of in a fairly amateurish way talking about you know blue tits feeding and etc cetera, etc cetera. I needed I needed to have other voices in there um, 
and I think often that's the best forms of of, uh, of certainly new nature writing is that they involve uh, other other voices in their in their texts and you, you get this with the good psychogeographers as well it's not just them wandering around it's them engaging with a whole kind of back catalogue of research and then talking to other people as well um you know you sit like Ian Sinclair's I think really good example where he, he, he literally wanders or it well, used to wander around but with a you know with a filmmaker and a documentary maker and then they you get a kind of frisson between them and you should you get that show of kind of minds working together on these things as well so who were when you were growing up mm. who were the people you read when you weren't in your oak tree apple pear tree rather or, or queuing up at the old men's cinema and then being told to go to the other queue you know what were what were you oh my uh, god he's got my life yeah yeah i know i know i know this the, the secrets the secrets near cherry pie um but yeah what who, who were your first people and it, and it doesn't have to be about what, what you've ended up doing i just wanted to yeah. who you enjoyed reading first of all i didn't read much to be honest uh, i you know that's that's the honest truth of it i mean a lot of people sort of say oh, i was reading you know i don't know uh, whoever hardy at 12 or something uh that wasn't me uh, you know that definitely wasn't me i was i was the kid that was just like covered in mud in the in the park uh because i was you know why do you want to read if you can like kick a ball or you know i don't know just run around or kick a stone you know so you didn't or, bother with stig of the dump because you were stig of the dump that's fair enough so then yeah. once you <laughs> no. so once you started studying so that's interesting once you started studying literature I'm yeah. what kind of you know that that decision and what was how much did the was that decision made from also perhaps starting to read certain things and going do you know what there is something in here there's something that's attaching itself to me by reading this yeah I think you're right I mean most most people normally have an English teacher that's pretty, pretty kind of key to them and I, and I think I had you know a couple of English teachers that made me recognize that books were quite interesting it's sort of in sort of secondary school stage and, and by by then you know perhaps you're reading you know, I was definitely reading uh, um, books that I kind of um, enjoyed a lot rather more, you know, books like Kez, Catcher in the Rye, you know, book, books that you just kind of could connect with rather than being kind of given certain texts that you had to be reading. Um, maybe I was just like, you know, it took me a while. I think I probably, I think I'd probably say I got into literature at the age of about sort of 16, mm. 16, 17 was far more when I was kind of, you know, and probably when I was meant to be reading science books by then, actually, because I kind of opted to go down the science route, pretty much. And so then I was like, oh, oh, Salinger. Oh, that's good, isn't it? Oh, I quite like that. You know, just obviously to just to annoy my parents as much as anything um, in that way. But but yeah, and then obviously all the way through university, you're reading, you're reading kind of beyond your course, aren't you? And that's why I quite like the fact that I've kind of slightly gone around the houses a bit educationally and that I was studying psychology and, uh, you know, had a brilliant, had an absolutely brilliant tutor, Steve Riker, who you hear on Radio 4 all the time now. He's he's kind of like leading kind of social psychology guy, but he was brilliant. And I worked with him and he just kind of, yeah, what was really nice is he, I think he listened uh, to the slightly more kind of out, out of the ideas that I had. So I wanted to study football hooliganism. Uh, you know, this was like in the in the late 80s. And uh, and he was like, yeah, definitely, let's do this. And, uh, you know, very supportive, very supportive. And so I was doing stuff on, you know, football chanting specifically. And I was really interested in football and the way that humans interact with each other. And I was saying, you know, the whole, the whole story about 
football fans was that they were really mindless and really dumb and stuff. And, you know, they just weren't, no one knew anything that they were doing. And of course, that's, that's never true about humans, really. There's normally sort of some aspect of why they're doing it um, that, that makes sense, really. Mm. And, uh, and I kind of started exploring these kind of aspects. Yeah, Steve was great on that. And then I think, yeah, after after uni, I definitely wanted to just go traveling as much as anything. And I, I was really into the sort of whole kind of travel literature and uh, and wanted to explore my own kind of uh, journeys across various parts of the world, which I always think is a really good thing to do. And, I'm, and at the moment, I think that's that's just really tough. I was chatting to my sister's day and, you know, my nephew's like looking to maybe go away to Colombia, but it's not as easy. Like, it's just not as easy as it used to be. And there's, you know, there's kind of, you know, you kind of even carbon footprint issues, you know, I was less concerned by that, I guess, in my 20s than than the 20 year olds are now and that mm. kind of thing. But uh, but yeah, certainly in terms of books and and, uh, and texts, etc. I think it was then by my mid 20s that I was properly into into literature and just reading all the classics as much as anything and any travel stuff that I could, you know, uh, Bruce Chatwin, obviously. And, and uh, you know, Jan Morris, that kind of thing. Bruce Chatwin's an interesting one, isn't it? Because Bruce Chatwin appears to be currently almost totally out of fashion. Yeah. There, there yeah. are certain authors where, because I remember when I was growing up and in, in, in the house, you know, my, my dad had lots of Bruce Chatwin, but still loves Bruce Chatwin, but then, you know, yeah. in, in Patagonia yeah. and things like that. And then Absolutely. there seems to have been that he was so much part of the 80s that now time has moved on and people have, you know, biographies still come out and I think there's enough kind of people who probably read the London Review of Books who feel that it should be on their shelf. But he uh, currently seems to be going through something of a, of a kind of, of, of a dip of interest that may well return. Yeah, and I think that's right. And, and one of the things that's really interesting with someone like Chatwin, I actually teach, so I actually teach Chatwin to, to second years to creative nonfiction um, in Patagonia. Um, but one of the problems that happened with, with Chatwin is people doubted the authenticity that there was like because there were question marks about did he actually did that actually happen did he do that and obviously within non-fiction that can be very dangerous um and going alongside that i mean travel in a way i mean there's a very interesting kind of piece from from granter in 2008 where they diverted the whole uh issue to new nature writing and and jason cowley in, in the editor's uh, note at the beginning to, kind of talks about well if travel writing is now a debased form you know and and this was this was 2008 and this idea of travel literature of just like kind of jot, jetting around the world and kind of commenting on indigenous communities for some sort of home crowd like it's colonial rubbish isn't it you know they, so this sort of sense that to a certain extent some of the movements in literature that we've seen have have kind of filled that void I would suggest so so the straightforward travel narratives of colonial writers in a way like Chatwin um though I still love his writing and he's a brilliant writer have slightly been taken over perhaps by um by new forms of writing see Not I've got a book here subtle. uh through darkest Pondaleo an account <laughs> of the adventures of two English ladies on a Cannibal Island by Serena Livingston Stanley, edited by Reverend Barnaby Whitecorn, DD, which is go. actually 
Joan Lindsay, who went on to write Picnic at Hanging Rock. And her wow. first ever book, this was from my, my, my friend Jeff, who's a wonderful book dealer down in Swansea. And a, wow. I, I think this was a first book. It might not be a first one, but it was basically a spoof of oh, okay, the colonial and, and that's in 1936 <laughs> so it's kind of that, that, that that's yeah. one of my favorite books i've picked up in the last couple of months but that unreliable narrator thing because sometimes mm -hmm. we read about the unreliable narrator genre and then i kind mm -hmm. of think well actually every book you read of a narrative from from one person's perspective i have mm -hmm. to presume is an unreliable narrator that, that that's actually part of the fun you know, I, I always think of someone like carlos castaneda you know and his teachings of don don juan and and they were as far as i know all made up pretty much you know it was it was you know all this stuff of you know sleeping in the desert and people went no do you know what temperature is he'd be dead he'd be dead he wouldn't have been able to say walking in the desert at that time of the day he'd be dead because he would have he would basically the the summer uh you can't sew a lizard's eyes shut with that particular thorn in fact you can't really sew a lizard's eyes shut it just breaks the eyelids you know all of these things and then i think the lovely thing is that the one of the guys who wrote a piece which basically unearthed that this was all rubbish and he was a writer, he was a Native American writer. And then it turned out that he actually wasn't Native American, that he'd made all that, that he'd made up his background. Right. So you had an unreliable narrator within an unreliable narrator and all of those kind of things. And then, as you said, people like Margaret Mead as well, who on a different, I don't, I don't count her, I'm not comparing her to the two I've just mentioned. But again, <laughs> that that interesting thing where the, the, the debates, quite often within that area of kind of anthropology, yeah. uh, and, and when you do actually get that, you know the authenticity or when you're talking was it her, her book coming of age in samoa where there was a lot of debate over the fact that you know sometimes people would turn up and uh as they turned up they go brilliant the white anthropologist here right let's Fabulous. put on a bit of a show yeah let's do that little dance thing that she really she really likes it and yeah. she always gives it's like cash or something you know what i mean yeah and i think that is it's problematic isn't it it's problematic with certain texts and um and particularly you know and you can't, you know, as you say, the, the, there's more obvious ones to, to turn to. And you'd like to think that the way in which aspects of, of literary, you know, study is going is that we, we do kind of recognise a bit more of a kind of post-colonial perspective, if you like, um, particularly when you look at, at, at texts that, that are writing about close knowledge of things like landscape and plants that are indigenous to that landscape, et cetera, that, you know, that you're going to ask the locals, go and, go and ask the people that have lived there for, for a long time. They'll probably give you a better story than someone who's just jetted in from England and is having a little look around and then is going to go home and write up this story for us. And I think that's right. I think, you know, Jason Cowley um, very much hit the nail on the head when he was talking about, you know, that we need the genres get kind of exhausted. I think, I think he talks about travel writing being a debased and exhausted genre in the sense that, you know, the colonial perspective had faded, uh, certainly by 2008, you'd like to think so. And, and that, you know, aspects such as new nature writing that were kind of voice driven and that were, kind of, you know, had these kind of multiple narratives if to a certain extent, um, I'm not saying they were kind of filling a void entirely, but they were kind of nudging into the gaps that were, that were therefore available. And it meant that things like travel writing expanded, uh, sorry, nature writing then expanded, if you like, in a simple way to, to, to take on some of the territory of, of travel. Um, you know, and again, with, with the Oak Papers, it's because, really, because I've been teaching the wild writing since 2009, um, 
you know, that I think that's another reason why I just realised that I couldn't just write a straight narrative text, that it would just be, it would be dull, really. Um, and it would be kind of like me kind of going, wow, this is amazing. Wow, this is amazing. And doing a lot of that kind of, wow, look at this. This is great. I feel really calm. But then I also <laughs> wanted to, you know, you know what it's like. You go away and you start reading about your subject matter. And quite quickly, I realised I wasn't the first to sit next to an oak tree, weirdly. Weirdly, you're not the first. If you read Homer in, you know, in the Odyssey, I sort of like went back to like, okay, what's the earliest text I can find that references Oaks? You know, I was doing a lot of this in the British Library. Well, just get with the Odyssey. I mean, how about that? That's eighth century BC. You know, um, you know, Odysseus, when he uh, finally decides he's going to go back to Ithaca, you know, before he does, he has to go to the Temple of Dodona. And hear the word of the gods. Is it should he travel, etc.? Where do you get the word of the gods? Well, of course, you listen to the susurrations of the oak leaves from the sacred oak in the center of the temple of Dodona. You know, it's this isn't new, you know, this isn't new. And, and I was kind of recognizing quite quickly that me telling, you know, the story of this 800-year-old oak tree needed needed to be expressing these other wider issues of humans and oaks um you know and you again you know my my previous book and my kind of go-to intrigue is probably into prehistory and um you know if you go into the archaeological record and speak to the archaeologists and uh you realize that you know that period where around the world wherever oaks grow when we were moving as as humans moving from kind of hunter-gatherer ways of being into being kind of more sedentary neolithic farming communities one of the key things all around the world was the importance of oaks because that those acorns you pretty much every year you get a good harvest of acorns and you could survive on them uh, and you could that would they'll get you through you know and there's there's a nice big pit I seem to remember that was found exactly from this early Neolithic just outside Berlin which had these was just full of of acorns that had been prepared they'd been kind of halved and cleaned and washed and uh, prepared and and again if you turn to the indigenous communities around around the world where where they they have oaks and they still use acorns you can you know you get acorn bread mm. you know it's acorn flour acorn bread uh it's not you know, and, and, and it's meant to be appetite suppressant as well. So this kind of idea and, um, you know, so that quite quickly, I'm just like, oh, there's, there's, this book needs to be a bit more complex than I thought. Um, you know, and I, yeah, I wanted to include my own sense of, of, of what was going on with me and my little life as well. Um, but also I needed to bring in the voices of a lot of other people. You know, one of, one of the first things when I went, when I started this project, I went, the writer Ronald Blythe lives just down the road from me and he's, we went to see him the other week and he's 99. Yeah. And he knows a thing or two. And, uh, and I went to see him when I first started this project and I was sort of saying about Oaks and he says, he says, yeah, you see all the village people, they used to talk about how you, you can, you can be in touch with those that have gone by touching the, the bark of the Oak because your grandfather and your great grandfather, they too stood under that Oak tree. And as you say, like, like you've got in the middle of your village green. Yeah. 
No, I love all that stuff. I, th- I, I was talking about that with the Stones of Kalanish actually recently while yeah. I've been touring yeah. around d- talking about this book. Very quick question before we end, which is, mm. what is the book or the piece of writing that you are most excited to tell your students about? It's like my friend Faye Dalka, when she gets to do her first fourth year lecture about mm. Einstein's theory of general relativity, she <laughs> is she cannot wait to share this. And do you have a certain bit of writing where you go, oh, I can't wait for, for them to get involved in this? certain bit of writing. That's a good one. Um, well, I do like the opening to In Patagonia. I always think that is really good. This like little bit of dinosaur skin uh, that's that's nailed in the grandmother's uh, cabinet. Um, yeah, that's always a good one. But at the moment, to be honest with you, and I know this might sound like a, a kind of sneak around it, but some of the writing that I'm getting back, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, not genuinely, because I'm teaching literature but i'm also teaching creative writing and and uh it's not just the study of writing but it's getting people to write or not getting them to write but it's kind of working with them as they write and now some of the stuff i've had recently is just like brilliant the last two or three years I, I think i've just had some fantastic work you know um i don't know I've kind of everything from kind of the various uh various narratives around trees in, uh, in North London, in Wood Green, including the perspective of a tree on a, on a, on a stabbing of where a guy is there by this tree dying, taken from the tree's perspective. That was an amazing piece of writing that one of my students, Denzel, wrote whenever it was three years ago or something. Uh, you know, so often that is, for me, the most fabulous stuff because I, it kind of comes out of left field and I'm like, whoa, mate, that's, that's a thing. That's a thing, sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, oh, well, that's, that's good because that was the other question I was going to ask: is what what you've been given back that you might like? But you've done that, so that's great. Um, James, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, Oak Papers well, is well. out now. Uh, thank you very much to our producer, um, Trent Burton, and uh, we will see you at the next book shambles. I hope. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become one, patreon.com slash bookshambles is the URL you need to head to. Check out the Cosmic Shambles bookshop. Check out Nine Lessons in the Spring at King's Place. Rate, like, review, five stars, all that on Apple Podcasts and beyond. We will be back next week with another new episode of Book Shambles. Until then, take care and stay safe. Bye for now.